Made MonsterCast, my name is Rob138. Before we get into today's film, I'd like to remind everyone that the Man Made MonsterCast is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to support, please head on over to patreon.com slash r0b138. So, it's been a minute, which seems to be part for the course on this podcast. Um, what got me off the bench and back into the game? Eh, little of this, little of that. Honestly... I just recently rewatched today's film, and for whatever reason, it struck me, um, and I just felt like I needed to talk about it. Also, it just so happens to coincide with the release of a brand new video game, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre video game by uh, Gun Studios, who had previously done Friday the 13th, which was awesome. Uh, Texas Chainsaw, so far... Seems like it's pretty fun, but um, it's got some bugs, I think, that still need to be worked out. But that's not what we're here for. We are here for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a 1974 film produced and directed by Toby Hooper. Hooper would go on to direct such seminal horror films as 1976's Eaten Alive, 1981's The Fun House, and 1982's Poltergeist. Hooper also directed 1979's Salem's Lot miniseries based on the Stephen King novel of the same name and a remake of the classic 1950s science fiction film Invaders from Mars, which also happens to be one of my favorite Toby Hooper films. But before all this, Hooper was just a kid from Austin, Texas. Hooper came up around film due to his parents owning a local theater in San Angelo, and in the 60s, Hooper would spend time as a college professor and a documentary cameraman where he initially came up with the idea for the Texas Chancel Massacre, before making his directorial debut in 1969 with a small film entitled Eggshells. Eggshells served as a quasi-proving ground for Hooper's vision. It dealt with elements of isolation and darkness, and in addition, Hooper had credited the graphic coverage of violence by the San Antonio news outlets as an inspiration for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hooper also cited the cultural and political landscape of the 1970s as central influences on his film and intentionally misinformed the audience that, quote, the film you are about to see is true end quote, as a response to, quote, being lied to by the government about all the things that were going on all over the world. This was in reference to Watergate, the oil crisis, and the Vietnam War. Hooper also stated in a 2004 issue of Rue Morgue that, quote, the lack of sentimentality and the brutality of things, end quote, on the news, which oft depicted, quote, brain spilled all over the road, led to his belief that, quote, man was the real monster here, just wearing a different face, he continued, so I put a literal mask on the monster of my film, end quote. In addition to these events, Hooper used elements of real-life serial killer Ed Gein in his morbid way of living. As Hooper explains in this clip from the 1997 documentary, A to Z of Horror. My relatives that lived in a town close to Ed Gein uh, told me these terrible stories these tales of human skin lampshades and furniture and such is that a little bit of uh grave robbing i think but i grew up with that like a kind of like a campfire tale you know a horror tale you tell in a story and uh telling the woods and uh and i didn't really know the man's name i didn't even know about ed gein i just knew about something that happened that was horrendous but that image really stuck, and, and I grew up with that, uh, that, that kind of burning in my mind. 
The idea of using a chainsaw, however, morbidly came to mind when Hooper was in the hardware section of a busy store and he wondered how to speed his way through the crowd. Hooper would find a partner in writer Kim Hankel and together the two would co-write the screenplay and form Vortex Incorporated. Boring Jim Seidel, who played the cook, credited as the old man in the Texas Chancel Massacre, the team would cast unknowns that were mainly local to Texas. The role of Sally, the final girl of the film, went to the late, great Marilyn Burns, who had previously performed in some stage roles. In addition to Burns, the film would cast Paul A. Partain as Sally's handicapped brother Franklin, Alan Danzinger as Jerry, William Vale as Kirk, and Terry McMinn as Pam. Joining Seidel would be Edwin Neal as the hitchhiker, and the late, great Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface. Hanson would go on to give a landmark performance as Leatherface. He delved deep into the psyche of the character and decided that Leatherface would actually have a learning disability and had never learned to speak properly. Hanson would visit special needs schools and study the movements and speech patterns of the students and then apply these to the characteristics of Leatherface. These characteristics remain with the character to this day. Rounding out the cast was John Larquette, who provided the infamous opening credits monologue. Larquette would be paid in marijuana. Filming began in the summer of 1973. The primary location for the film is a farmhouse near Rock Round, Texas, and I believe the house is still sitting today. I'm pretty sure it's a restaurant or a cafe or something. I knew it was still standing a couple years back. Pretty sure it's still there. Concerns over the small budget and the high cost of the equipment meant that the cast and crew would work seven days a week and up to 16 hours a day. The shoot was grueling. The environment was humid, and temperatures reached up to 100 degrees. Gunnar Hansen recalled in a 2004 interview, quote, It was 95 to 100 every day during filming. They wouldn't wash my costume because they were worried that laundry might lose it or that it would change color. They didn't have enough money for a second costume, so I wore that mask 12 to 16 hours a day, 7 days a week, for a month. End quote. I bet that smelled incredible. Aside from the stress of the heat, the cast fought injuries and concerns over pay. At one point, Paul Partain told the director that he wasn't filming a scene that would see Franklin falling out of his wheelchair and down a hill until he was paid, telling the director that he could, quote, find some other fat boy to fall down, end quote. A check was then cut on the spot. The film was shot using an Eclair and NPR 16mm camera and used fine-grade low-speed film, which required more light than most film stocks of the day. This allowed greater mobility and cost savings of the 35mm standard of the day. Filming took place mostly in the farmhouse, which was not cooled and had very little ventilation. The set consisted of furniture made with animal skulls and thin latex to replicate human skin. Animal blood was spattered on the walls, and the art director Robert A. Burns found himself driving around the Texas countryside collecting the remains of cattle and other animals, which he would then use to litter the rooms of the house. As far as effects go, they were simple and oftentimes limited by the budget, going so far as to use real blood in the scene where Leatherface feeds Grandpa. The crew had difficulty getting the blood tube to work, so Burns instead cut his finger open with a razor blade. And that's what you see in the film today. Marilyn Burns' costume would be so soaked in blood that by the end of filming it was virtually solid. William Vale, Kirk, would be placed in a situation where he was told by Gunnar Hansen to stay still or he may really be killed in a scene that saw Leatherface bring a chainsaw inches from his face. Real hammers were used in several scenes, and by the time filming wrapped, quote, everyone hated me, recalled Toby Hooper. Quote, it took years for them to kind of cool off. Most of the cast would never work with Toby Hooper again. The film exceeded its original $60,000 budget, with estimates ranging from $90,000 to $300,000. 
The film would see release on October 1st, 1974. The film would play on as a Saturday matinee, and its admittedly false advertising of Based on True Events drove a curious audience into the theaters. The film would then run annually for eight years and eventually grossed around $30 million, but would ultimately turn minimal profits due to a bad deal with the distributor, which saw a measly $8,100 left to be divided amongst the cast and crew. Upon release, Hooper had hilariously hoped for a PG rating and instead received an X. Several minutes were cut from the film and it eventually received an R rating. Many filmgoers were disgusted by the film and two theaters in Ottawa, Canada were told by the local police to discontinue all showings of the film lest they be faced with morality charges, which are apparently a thing in Canada. The film then ran for a year in London before eventually making it to the now infamous Video Nasties list and was subsequently banned. Critically, the film received mixed reviews, with one Los Angeles Time writer calling the film, quote, despicable, whereas the Cincinnati Enquirer praised Marilyn Burns' performance, stating that, quote, Marilyn Burns deserves a special Academy Award for one of the most sustained and believable acting achievements in movie history, end quote. Today, the film is viewed as groundbreaking in the horror genre and is revered by fans and filmmakers alike. The film was inducted into the Horror Hall of Fame in 1990 and is part of the permanent collection of New York City's Museum of Modern Art. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We open with close shots of decomposing corpses. We get the sound and the flash of a flashbulb from an old camera taking photos of the said corpses before cutting out to a horrendous flesh effigy in the cemetery. The shot is uncomfortably long, which you will see as a theme in this film, but that's in a good way while various news reports about grave robbings and whatnot play in the background. We then cut over to our group of friends on a road trip and a van. The group includes Sally, Jerry, Pam, Kirk, and Sally's handicapped man-child of a brother, Franklin. Now, let me be clear, when I say handicapped man-child, I don't mean like has a learning disability like Leatherface. No, 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 no. I mean, he's in a wheelchair and is a whiny crybaby bitch. Anyways, the friends stop by the cemetery to check family member's grave, while on said road trip, before eventually passing by a slaughterhouse. Franklin, who everyone hates, by the way, and no, that's that's actually not ever really stated or really shown beyond some mild teasing, but how exactly can anyone like this dude? Franklin recalls that he and Sally's family being in the animal slaughtering business and describes some of it in gory detail, much to the dismay of the girls. Oh, and before I forget, because this sticks with me, and it will always stick with me, going back to the summers of Mustang Pizza at my old drummer's house in Middle River, watching all kinds of horror movies every weekend. This scene always got a chuckle out of us. At some point, Franklin has to piss. So they wheel him out of the van into the side of the road so he can piss in a coffee can. 
Franklin then proceeds to fall out of his wheelchair and rolls down the hill, covering himself in his own piss. I feel like this may have been played for sympathy, but it's kind of like Forrest Gump getting hit in the head with a rock. And by, by that, I mean it's absolutely freaking hilarious. Eventually, they pass by a hitchhiker and decide to pick him up. And I gotta wonder, did the hitchhiker trope start with this film? Not sure. Maybe something I have to research. Anyways, Franklin says the guy looks like Dracula. And honestly, I don't see the resemblance to Bela Lugosi or Sir Christopher Lee. But then again, it was the 70s, so I'll just assume that Franklin's high. We then find out that Franklin and the hitchhiker are equally deranged as they form a bond over animal slaughter. The hitchhiker then takes a liking to Franklin's pocket knife and cuts himself open. Afterwards, he proceeds to take a photo of Franklin, and after Franklin refuses to pay for it, the hitchhiker burns the photo, then cuts Franklin's arm open before being thrown out of the van. Apparently, this is how you made friends in the 70s. The hitchhiker then kicks their van and then smears blood on it. Shaken up and low on fuel, the Scooby gang stops at a local barbecue and gas station. I imagine these were the precursors to Wawa. And here's where we meet the old man, who tells them that he's out of gas and the truck won't be there until late in the afternoon or early morning. The gang asks about the old Hardesty house, and the old man advises that they ought not to go messing around with that, and instead just hang out, have some barbecue, and wait for the fuel truck. Well, they don't take his advice, because if they did, we wouldn't have a movie. The group finds the old house, and they head out to explore. Franklin is uh, an absolutely miserable pile of ass the entire time, at one point cursing all of his friends and making repeated fart noises to the heavens before wheeling himself into the doorway, hitting his knee like an asshole. Everybody knows you never go full retard. You went full retard, man. Pam and Kirk tell the would-be idiot, Franklin, that they're going to go swimming. And this is, this is about where business picks up. Because, look, we didn't come here. We did not come here to watch all of these, these kids be friends and go swimming and have a good old summer. That's not what we're here for. This is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not the Texas Chainsaw Slumber Party. So as the two of them are making their way over to the lake, they hear some gas generators. Knowing that they need gas, they decide to go check it out. Kirk suggests that he would take some gas and leave his guitar as payment, and as a musician, I, I, I gotta I gotta ask, what? I'm sorry, what the fuck out of here with that, dude? Like, you're not giving your... Oh, whatever. As they investigate further, Kirk and Pam find an automobile graveyard of sorts. It's pretty well hidden. Uh, I mean, at this point, anybody with half a brain would be the fuck out of there, right? But no, it's, it's the 70s, man. It's all good. Kirk decides he's going to go inside the house and ask for some gas, which is... As far as smart ideas go, not at the top. Kirk begins to search the house after hearing something that sounds like a pig. And yeah, this, this is the scene. We all know it. We all love it. It's the first ever on-screen appearance of Leatherface. Leatherface pops out of the infamous doorway by the stairs and cleaves Kirk in the head with a tenderizing mallet. Kirk then collapses to the ground and convulses. And that's just a little touch that I've always loved. Like the, the, uh, the legs shaking, like twitching. As he lays there. Leatherface then drags him in and slams the sliding metal door. Something that really sticks out to me at this point is the soundtrack, or lack thereof. There's virtually no music in this film, and the stuff that can be considered music is really more like ambient sounds mixed together. Pam then enters the house to look for Kirk, only to stumble into a room full of bones and feathers and hair and furniture made of body parts, and there's even a random chicken in a birdcage. 
Naturally, she's mortified, but is ultimately caught by Leatherface and hung up on a meat hook, which is another iconic scene. As she's hanging there, she gets to watch Leatherface rev up his chainsaw and begin to dismember Kirk. And I think this had to be the scene where the chainsaw was inches from his face, which is kind of nuts when you think about it because it's not even shown on camera. Later that evening, Jerry, Sally, and Asshole are worried about their friends and wonder where they went. Jerry decides he's going to look, and Franklin begins to pester his sister with annoying questions, at one point asking her if she even wanted him to come. No. Franklin, no one wanted you here. It's 100% out of pity because you're crippled, you have a terrible personality, you add stress to the group, and you offend everyone. I literally cannot wait for him to die. I said what I said. Jerry eventually finds the house of death and discovers Pam's spasming body in a meat freezer. He justifiably freaks out, but gets murdered with a hammer before he can split. It's now nighttime, and poor Sally is stuck with her brother. And you know, comparatively, I think she's going to have a much more tolerable and borderline enjoyable time with Leatherface and his family. Again, comparatively speaking. Anyways, Franklin continues his stupid line of questioning. He doesn't want to give his sister the flashlight because he's a pussy. So she decides that she's going to look for her friends in the dark. Franklin then wheels himself after her. Some time goes by, they can't find anyone, when suddenly, and potentially the only humanity-benefiting act that he's ever done, Leatherface appears and chainsaws Franklin to death. Sally screams and takes off running, though I imagine not before thanking whatever god she might believe in, that she's finally relieved of the burden that was her brother. Sally then finds the house and locks Leatherface out. She runs upstairs to find an old decomposing man along with a decomposed animal and a decomposed lady. Meanwhile, Leatherface is gleefully sawing through his own front door. You'd think he might have had a key for times like this. But I digress. Sally then realizes that the old man, that we all know and love, Grandpa, is alive and she runs back down the stairs only for Leatherface to burst in. So she runs back up the stairs and jumps through a second floor window and crashes to the ground below. And I, I have to wonder, with the limited budget and the known harsh filming conditions, if Marilyn Burns didn't just jump out of a fucking window. Leatherface gives chase, but Sally eventually makes it to the gas station from earlier. Marilyn Burns is so fucking good here. She is absolutely overcome with fear and anxiety. The old man from earlier tries to console her, the old man being the man from the gas station, not Grandpa. Um, and she says that they have to call the police, but he tells her he doesn't have a phone and that they'll, they'll have to drive. He then goes out to his truck, and this is what's so different between films then and now, right? Today, they, there would have been that played-out trope of, we don't have a phone, and the literal second that he walked out, we would have heard a phone ring in the other room or in the background or something, and some loud, duh, kind of noise. And, like, that kind of shit ruins a scene for me, you know? But you know what we heard instead? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Silence. The camera just hung uncomfortably on the doorway while Sally and the audience realized that there really isn't a phone and there is no way to get help. Then the next thought is, what's going to come through that door? And listen, the door was left wide open, which builds even more tension. God damn it, this movie rules. Kids, they do not make them like this anymore. 
So the old man comes back with a burlap sack and a bit of rope, and Sally knows something's up. She grabs a knife to hold him at bay, but he proceeds to whoop her ass with a broom. On the drive back to the house, the old man spots the hitchhiker and gives him a tongue lashing and reiterates that he told him not to mess around with that graveyard. Implying that the effigy from earlier and the opening credits with the camera stuff was all the hitchhiker. When the two arrive back at the house, the old man hilariously laments, Look what he did to the door! I love the family dynamic between them, and I'm all about a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sitcom that sees Leatherface and the Hitchhiker getting into all sorts of misadventures and the old man trying to clean up their messes. That'd be awesome. It's worth noting that Leatherface is now in women's clothing and has a new, quote, face on with makeup. This is also the first time that anyone calls him Leatherface when we hear the Hitchhiker refer to him as such. Leatherface is also very submissive to the old man and oftentimes acts like a scalded dog. The old man tells the brothers to bring Grandpa down, and they oblige. And this is the scene where Robert Burns' finger was cut, doubling as Sally's, to feed Grandpa. Sally then passes out from exhaustion and terror. The next morning, Sally awakens, tied to a chair with human arms for arms, and she's overlooking a table with armadillo roadkill in the center. A lamp of human faces hangs above, and the family sit at the other end. This macabre scene is the crown jewel of this film. Sally proceeds to let out a blood-curdling scream, which I surmise that when you consider the filming conditions and the ghastly vision in front of her didn't really require a whole lot of acting on Marilyn Burns' part. What I love here is that the entire family then joins in on the screaming for longer than it is comfortable, and it becomes an acid trip kind of in delirium with otherworldly sound effects and extreme close-ups on Burns' eyes and her grotesquely contorted face while she screams. After the screams turn to tears, however, the hitchhiker gets a little saucy with the old man, telling Sally that he's just the cook and that he, the hitchhiker, and Leatherface do all of the real work. The old man, mad at first, then laments that he doesn't enjoy killing. Once they resolve their issues, they decide that Grandpa is going to kill Sally with a hammer. Grandpa was, in fact, the best in his day. The hitchhiker drags Sally over, and I'm, I'm going to be honest. This looked really rough. Like, like, it looked like real, and it looked like it may have hurt Marilyn Burns. Like, borderline snuff film, and which kind of checks out for this film, but, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. So Grandpa doesn't quite have the strength left in him to do this anymore. He drops the hammer a couple times, and he only really catches Sally in the back of the head one time out of the four or five attempts. Sally, shaken and groggy, is able to free herself from the hitchhiker's grip and then throws herself through another window. The brothers give chase, and once they get to the main road, the hitchhiker's killed after being run down by a 48-foot trailer being pulled by a tractor named the Black Maria, which... By the way, I have the Blu-ray set of the Black Maria. It kicks ass. Sally hops in the cab with the driver, but Leatherface attacks. The two slide out of the other side of the cab, with the driver grabbing a pipe wrench on the way out. Leatherface begins to chase him again, but the driver throws the wrench and hits Leatherface square in the face, knocking him down and causing him to saw into his own leg. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Sally then flags down a pickup truck and struggles to get into the back, but just barely makes it. They ride off into the sunrise, and we end with two of the most iconic shots in horror cinema history. Sally screaming, laughing, covered in blood in the back of the pickup truck, and Leatherface swinging his chainsaw around like a madman, which is now affectionately referred to as the Chainsaw Dance. 
And that's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Just wow. Listen, like I know the podcast has been coming go lately and, and all that, but I got to say that one of the biggest reasons that I love doing these things for you guys is that it makes me sit down and watch a film with different eyes and different ears. I mean, I, I've seen this film easily a hundred times at this point in my life, but it's not until I sit down to look at it critically do I really discover some of the nuances. So let's break it down. The good. Where to start? You'd think that the budget would hurt the film, but it actually doesn't. It helps it. It looks the way that it should look, which is very real and very visceral. I likened it to a snuff film earlier, and, and I mean that. Even to this day, with all the remasters and upscaling and etc., the film just looks like something you're not supposed to see. Which brings me to the performances. Every actor in this film enhances that feeling. Yes, even Franklin. They aren't folks that you recognize from anywhere else, and even though the filming conditions were miserable, they gave everything that they had to this film, and in some cases, gave even more. The sound design, again, supports the feeling of witnessing something that you're probably not supposed to see. Sometimes the lack of sound is what makes something more terrifying. The bad. Franklin. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Franklin's annoying, but I think that's by design. I really don't have anything to say as far as anything bad goes. This film rocks and still holds up today. So, the final verdict. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a product of its time, and it's all the better for it. It was one of the first real grindhouse exploitation films of its kind, and it's a landmark film in the slasher subgenre, and still stands head and toes above the pretenders, the remakes, and the reboots. You just cannot touch this film. All of its perceived shortcomings by industry standards even then actually make it a better film. It's grainy, it's dirty, it's morbid, and it's grotesque. But so was and is the world that we live in, which is why this still holds up today. There's a reason the reboots, the relaunches, the remakes, the re-whatevers never stick. And there's a reason that Toby Hooper went super campy and gory the opposite direction of this film for the sequel. And that is because you cannot improve upon perfection. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre joins the Evil Dead and the War of the Worlds and will be the third film that I have ever rated 10 out of 10 on the man-made monster cast. Well, there you have it. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. As per usual, hit the socials on the way out. And I have been Rob138, and I will catch on the flip side. You know, they did that, that Netflix uh, sequel where Sally, but not Sally, is the hero, and it kind of like ripped off the Halloween 2018 Halloween 2, but not Halloween. Hmm. You know, the sequel that I want, the sequel that I want is the truck driver. Whatever happened to him? He just runs away off screen, and we never find out if Leatherface killed him.